Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In Africa's Sahel region, 10,000 people have died in the past two years as jihadists battle security forces and Western peacekeepers. The forces aren't keeping the peace, and on a visit, our correspondent finds the jihadists are winning the war. And in competitive gaming, there should be a level playing field between men and women. But a persistent gender divide keeps women out of esports' top flight and hands them less loot. Slowly, though, that seems to be changing. First up, though. For much of this millennium, elections in Chile have been relatively stable affairs. Not this time. In the first round of presidential elections, voters plumped for the most extreme candidates with starkly contrasting visions for the country's future. On the far right, José Antonio Cast received 28% of the vote. just behind him with 26%, the communist-friendly former student leader Gabriel Boric. The elections took place with Chile still in the shadow of deadly protests two years ago. More than a million people took to the streets, frustrated with the country's deep inequalities. To restore calm, Chile's leaders agreed to rewrite the country's constitution, first adopted under the dictator Augusto Pinochet, whose rule ended in 1990. That promise was intended to bring some political and social stability. But constitutional reform is now tied up with heavily polarized politics, and the runoff election in December is only likely to deepen the country's divisions. This is the most polarized election Chile has had since the return of democracy in 1990. And they are happening with the backdrop of a massive social uprising that took place in October 2019, which went on for weeks and often became violent. Ana Lankas is our Argentina and Chile correspondent. That uprising was fueled by demand for greater equality and better public services, and also the citizenry not feeling represented anymore by political parties. And so in the wake of that uprising, leaders promised to rewrite the constitution and voters chose to elect a convention to write that constitution, which was elected earlier this year. So this is a year of two very polarizing elections. One is to the constitutional convention, um, which resulted in lots of leftists and independent candidates winning seats. And two, it's this general election that just took place yesterday. 
So the efforts to rewrite the Constitution have a, a left-leaning balance, but the general election has seemed to put the, the hard-right candidate, Jose Antonio Cast, on, on top. Tell me about him. Definitely there's been a kind of right-wing comeback in this general election. And the candidate who won the first round of this election is called Jose Antonio Cast, And he surged in the polls in the final weeks leading up to the election because he exploited fears of disorder around the second anniversary of the October 2019 uprising. And Jose Antonio Cast is basically the only candidate in this election who doesn't really want to change Chile's system significantly. So Cast wants to preserve the low-tax economic model of Augusto Pinochet, who was a dictator who ruled Chile from 1973 to 1990. So Cast wants to restore a very socially conservative vision for Chile, which has been melting away for the past 10 years. So Cast is running on a platform of law and order, anti-migrant sentiment, and kind of exploiting fears not just of disorder but of rapid social change. He's a devout Catholic. He's a father of nine children and he opposes legalizing same-sex marriage. He's a very good campaigner. He's very soft-spoken, easygoing and fun and he puts out these self-deprecating TikTok videos he has a lot of charm, and I think that probably helped him as much as the fears over disorder did. And Mr. Cast narrowly won this first round of the election. Who was the runner-up? The runner-up was Gabriel Boric, a 35-year-old former student leader who's allied with the Communist Party. And he presents a radically different vision for the future of Chile. I spoke to a pollster who put it this way, if Boric represents the demands that gave rise to the uprising in 2019, Cast represents the backlash two years later, which is that people want order and security. So Boric would scrap the model for public services introduced by the Pinochet regime, which gives private providers a very large role in the provision of, of those services. He wants to forgive student debt, create a universal healthcare service, abolish private pension funds, make public transport free and green, and raise taxes by a massive eight percentage points of GDP in as few as six years. On the campaign trail, Boric said that if Chile was the cradle of neoliberalism, it will also be its grave. He also has quite a radical social agenda, which includes legalizing abortion and same-sex marriage, but beyond that also gender self-identification from the age of 14. He's kind of supported by young, educated, largely urban people, which is very different to, to Cast's electorate. Those are two very different visions. I guess there's not a lot of room for the political center in Chile. So traditional parties have been discredited over the past couple of years, and this year they embraced quite a lot of populist measures that didn't show good governance. So, for example, they allowed withdrawals from pensions accounts, and that has fueled inflation. And they haven't provided a convincing counter-narrative to these radically opposing visions for Chile. They, for example, haven't defended their legacy. The center-left and center-right parties have been in power for most of the past 30 years since democratization. And there have been massive advances for average Chileans in terms of poverty reduction, expansion of education, and all sorts of other social indicators. And they didn't provide a convincing narrative that these past three decades have actually been a success. So this mix of polarization and, and disillusionment and so on, what does that, all that mean for the process of rewriting the Constitution that, that's driven so much of the discontent here? 
That's a really good question because Boric would put the presidential palace on the side of the protesters and their allies in the Constitutional Convention. But a win for caste would show that the tide is turning away from the protesters. If caste wins in the second round, he will probably clash with the convention on several fronts. In the past few months, there's been discussion of changing the political system in Chile, that the convention, for example, could change the presidential system to a parliamentary one or diminish the powers of the executive. That might be, you know, that might be deemed by some people as a political act if caste were to win the second round. And how do you see that tension playing out between the eventual president and the constitutional convention? I think if caste were to win, you would see possibly a backlash on the streets. We can expect to see political instability for the next couple of months, if not years, just because the work of the convention is so fundamental and it's going to take a long time for that new constitution to be implemented. I mean, because this is such a polarized election, it seems clear to me that neither caste nor Boric offers the combination of stability, economic growth and reform that the country needs. And so I think we can expect to see some more instability in the coming months. Anna, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. A dusty and increasingly deadly fight in Mali and neighboring Burkina Faso and Niger amounts to the biggest Western intervention against jihadism in the world. It includes around 15,000 UN troops and 1,000 Americans, with France leading the counterterrorism operation with 5,000 of its personnel. But attacks are on the rise. Two million people have fled their homes as insurgents take advantage of patchy state security and support. The region's governments and their Western backers are slowly losing the war. So I travelled to Mali, which is a vast landlocked country in West Africa. Its south is greener, it's you know the agricultural centre for the country. The capital crams onto the banks of the river Niger. It's a bustling and busy place full of commerce and activity. Kinley Salmon is our Africa correspondent. But then as you go further north in Mali, it becomes a, really a desert country with very small, dusty outposts of population. And sadly, these days, a, a very large jihadist insurgency that's been rolling on for more than eight years. Uh, jihadists often sweeping out of uh, the desert on motorbikes and attacking uh, villages or, or army garrisons. And that insurgency has spilled into its neighbours as well, displacing more than two million people. And despite large efforts to fight this jihadist insurgency, in the last two years, 
Uh, alone, 10,000 people have died in the conflict. And there's really a sense on the ground uh, that those trying to fight the jihadists at the moment are losing. And so where did you go? Did you see both the south and the north of the country? So I first uh, arrived in Bamako, the capital of Mali. It does have a serious security presence when you're trying to enter into hotels or, or restaurants, but it doesn't exactly feel like a city under siege. But I then later took a flight north to a city called Gao, uh, where there is a, a real sense of being under siege by jihadists. And there uh, I stayed on a military camp uh, and watched helicopters come uh, circling low in over the camp to land on the, on the one airstrip out of which many of the military operations in the north of Mali fighting these jihadists are operated. And who did you speak to when you were there? Well, I spoke to quite a number of British peacekeepers uh, serving there, and, and they certainly felt that they were helping when they uh, roll out of, of the base. They go on kind of quite long missions. They're able to stay in the field for, for weeks. And you know, when they move out, locals in those villages are able to relax, are able to live life a little bit more normally, to, to loosen a veil or light up a cigarette. In one village, the British told me about a, a joyous wedding being staged, partly because they were camped nearby. But they also lamented the fact, uh, the soldiers I spoke to in, in the mess, in the dining hall, if you will, uh, of this military camp, that, of course, when they go back to base, you know, jihadists kind of once again come out of the, the scrub and threaten villages, including a, a, a horrific massacre in a, in a village called Wataguna, or a town called Wataguna, um, about 170 kilometers from Gao. And they only reached that the day after and rather felt that, you know, uh, there wasn't much they could do at that stage to help. And how is it that things have gotten so bad with the jihadists? So Mali really has a a long history of government that is both very focused on the capital in the south and tends to ignore uh, the north and the more distant regions. And it's often also been a government that has had serious allegations of corruption. Instead of trying to provide you know, some security in other parts of the country, they tended to outsource uh, some of that security provision to local militia, and then more recently to foreign troops from the UN and France. And in that absence of the state, uh, you know, grievances can grow. There's been growing criminality, and jihadists are able to even win support, in some cases, from the local communities by offering a form of justice, even if it's really brutal. And so how to undo that then? What could be done to to make this situation better? It is, I think, clear that jihadists that are in this region won't be beaten by force alone. Some form of improved government and economic development are going to be essential in the long run to win legitimacy for the state. But this looks really a long way off. Mali has suffered two coups since August 2020. There have been years of poor government and corruption. The promises the coup leaders have made to hold elections in February is now clear that they will not, in fact, do that, and the delay could be a lot longer. While in Bamako, I spoke to Imam Mahmoud Diko, who was a very influential religious figure and a major leader of the, the huge street protests against the previous president, Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, and he told me that Mali is still in a profound crisis. And I think many Malians will wonder whether at some point he may again uh, rally people to the streets. And what's the interplay with all of that political dysfunction and then all of these peacekeeping troops? 
Well, um, the, the French general uh, who I spoke to, who was a commander of, of their operations there, you know, argued to me that the political upheaval and the political difficulties in Bamako had a, a very, very limited impact on military operations, he said. Uh, but I think there are reasons to be sceptical about that. First of all, it may not last. Uh, you know, the transitional government has been trying to rally support for a much longer transition. And one of the ways it sought to do that is to blame France for many of the country's woes. And then it's also stirred the pot further by uh, possible plans to hire Wagner Group, which is a Russian mercenary outfit to help with security. And that's very much upset uh, the French, uh, who are already frustrated at Mali's political dysfunction and are closing some bases in the north of Mali, as well as reducing their troops in the region by almost a half in the long term. So these political and security uh, challenges, you know, really end up quite intertwined. But as you say, experience suggests that that military force alone isn't going to do this. I mean, is, is there any kind of peace process going on or planned? Well, a lot of Malians are keen on the idea of some form of negotiations uh, with jihadists. And that's also been mooted over the border in Burkina Faso, too. And in fact, at the local level, there have been scores of, of really quite local uh, small agreements between different ethnic groups uh, where there have been tensions and, and fighting, as well as with jihadists themselves. And these have helped to stop fighting in, in some villages and allow people to at least move about freely. But higher level you know, political negotiations with jihadist leaders is a much bigger leap. Uh, and it's something that France very clearly opposes. So there's still really huge uncertainty about how all this is going to play out, about whether Russian mercenaries might show up, about how France and other Western allies might react to that, and then whether government might launch this kind of negotiations uh, with jihadists. But I think one thing is pretty clear, and that is that unfortunately this war will not be over anytime soon. Kinley, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. not-too-distant future, after a mysterious event known as the First Light, agents in the video game Valorant are locked in a never-ending battle. Hey! Stop! Uh, I said stop! In real life, it's eSports players who are fighting for nearly a million dollars in Champions Tour prize money. Well, the male players at least. This year, the Valorant tournament for female players offered winnings of just $23,000. But that disparity, and others like it, could soon be shifting. The world of esports actually has quite a puzzling inequality between men and women. Rachel Ashcroft writes about culture for The Economist. Worldwide, 45% of gamers across all devices are women. And in terms of esports, 42% of people who follow it are women. It's not unusual to have women analysts or commentators following esports tournaments. But when it actually comes to playing the game itself, when it comes to competing professionally, uh, there's not a single player within the top 300 highest esports earners who's a woman. Why is that, though? What, what explanation is there for an absence of women? So there's a couple of things that could be, you know, causing this problem. I think there's a bit of a vicious cycle where men started out in esports and then it became really popular and they get better facilities to help them train, you know, for tournaments. And then women sort of see this happening and they don't see themselves represented. And that can be a bit of a barrier in itself. You know, you start to think it might not be for you. 
Women players have complained about sexism in the game, sexual harassment online. And what about any active efforts to actually get more women involved? Yeah, so it's great that we are actually starting to see some changes within the industry. And that change is really starting to come from the top. So, for example, in Europe, there's a company called G2 Esports. It's a global organization with headquarters in Berlin. And they recently announced that they've created their first ever all-female team. Alongside that, we've got another company called Guild X. They're actually part owned by David Beckham. And they've, again, introduced another all-female team. And what that means is that these women will now get the same sort of facilities and you know, opportunities as their male players. So one of the things you mentioned as a point of progress is that there are all women teams, but does splitting up genders in that way for esports make sense? The thing about video games is that you don't actually need to segregate them by sex. And I think that some women have already expressed concerns about establishing all female teams because they worry that that's going to be, you know, the norm when it doesn't have to be. And there's plenty of women out there who play with men, you know, in their free time. Esports doesn't need to be segregated. But for now, it looks as though all-female tournaments are here to stay and that we might not see the beginning of mixed teams for a while yet. But we're definitely starting to see change come from the top down, which is really exciting. So I spoke with Vanessa Alström. She is a Swedish professional esports player, and she's really confident that uh, more women are going to enter esports eventually. I definitely do think that in the next few years we're going to see girls compete close, maybe not on the top, top level, but I think it's going to be closely to the top level. And I'm very excited to see that, but because I feel like a lot of girls in the scene now, because it's grown so much and it's growing every day, there's a lot of young, hungry girls that want to prove themselves and want to be the best. I think the playbook's definitely changing for female esports stars. Rachel, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much for having me. all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups... Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.